Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Happy December 16th to all of you. It's kind of crazy. I don't know if it's crazy to any of the rest of you. I can't believe Christmas is nine days away. I can't believe that 2019 is like just barely over two weeks away. This month, of course, uh, has flown by. And I'm wondering, a question for the room here, how many of you have already had a a Christmas party of some sort this season? Like a work Christmas party, small group, a good number of us, right? So uh, on Friday, actually, uh, we had our Daybreak staff party, and maybe you got to enjoy some of the pictures that were posted on Facebook from uh, that party. Uh, But one of the things that we did is we had a competition where we split into two teams, and we strapped reindeer antlers on Pastor Rick's head and on Pastor Sean's head, and then we had to try to toss rings onto their antlers, and the motivation was whichever team won, that campus pastor got to go first and last in the White Elephant Gift Exchange, uh, which Rick did not win, and so then he ended up with a WWE calendar as his gift. Meanwhile, Pastor Sean won and got, got what he wanted, but uh, it was pretty fun. Uh, but anyway, speaking of games, I don't know how many of you have ever played the game Twister before. Probably when you were a kid, the last time you played Twister. I think the adult version of it is that human knot game. Have you ever played that human knot game? Where like you, you get together, you stand in a circle, and you have to reach both of your arms across the circle and grab somebody else's hands. And then you have to basically stay all connected, but somehow figure out a way to unknot yourself. Uh, and then you kind of get back out to a, a, a circle again. And I don't know about you, but anytime I play either one of those games, uh, I'm kind of forced to twist and cajole my body in ways that don't feel very natural. Uh, it's like I'm being asked to turn into a physical pretzel, and I don't know about you, but I'm just not that flexible. And I think I can start to play like the I'm getting old card as well. Last night, for instance, I just went to take off a shirt and hurt my shoulder. I'm not like just taking off a shirt. Like, what is happening? Uh, Our bodies. Anyways, this month we have been talking about anxiety. (laughs) And whereas the human knot game or twister can turn us into physical pretzels, anxiety can so easily turn us into emotional pretzels, (laughs) can it? And when all of our emotions get twisted and turned upside down, that emotional challenge can even manifest itself in physical challenges. We get that kink in our neck, or we find ourselves grinding our teeth, or we get headaches, or even have trouble catching our breath, or a pounding heart, or upset stomach, extreme fatigue. All of these are very normal, very real physical reactions to us struggling with anxiety. And so we've talked about emotional challenges, we've talked about physical challenges, but the truth is that anxiety may well be the greatest spiritual challenge. It might be the greatest spiritual oppressor of our day and age. And so that's why, among other reasons, we believe it is so crucial for us to talk about anxiety, even though oftentimes people see issues like anxiety as a little bit taboo. If you have a long-standing relationship with anxiety, Maybe the message that you've gotten from our culture is you just need to try a little bit harder. (laughs) Or maybe the message that you've even gotten from other Christians has been you just need to believe more, just have a little bit more faith, pray a little bit harder. But if you're honest, a lot of those messages have just rung kind of hollow to you because it just hasn't been that simple for you. You know, I think at times we tend to treat uh, anxiety and several other challenges in our lives as a, a light switch issue. Do you know what I mean by that? It's like one of those issues where we feel like it should just be as easy as flipping a switch, right? 
to fix it. Just flip a switch and turn that off. But we're here today and we're spending the month of December on this topic because anxiety is not a quick fix kind of issue. It's not just as simple as just just turn it off (laughs) and move past it. Why? Because again, spiritual uh, anxiety, we believe, is a spiritual oppression that holds its victims captive, making them just feel powerless to be able to escape. Now, if you're someone who has struggled with anxiety, you might have wished that it was as easy as just flipping a light switch, right? You may have even spent a significant amount of time in your life trying to figure out what is that switch? Where is that switch? Maybe you hoped that the switch was medication. If I can just get on some medication, I'll be able to flip that switch or, or coping skills. Maybe you hope that the switch was just, hey, if I just shove this thing back down, get it down in there deep enough, if I can just ignore these anxious feelings, then they'll go away. Now, all or any of those things, they may have helped a little bit right, but none of them probably turned off your anxiety. And so this morning, when you think about anxiety, (laughs) the word you most crave, the thing you most desire is freedom. And the good news is we believe there is hope (laughs) because we have seen people find freedom from this oppression. We have watched people discover Jesus' power to heal and to calm fears and to cast out doubts and to give freedom. Last week, you heard Heidi's powerful story (laughs) of the freedom that she is starting to find, and you hear another great story today. But here we are, we're nine days away from Christmas, the time of year where we celebrate Jesus, right, the baby born in the manger. But luckily for us, the story didn't just end with a cute baby. It's not the end of the story. No, the story of Jesus continued, and Jesus became Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who lived and died to conquer all spiritual oppression, fear, and sickness, and sin, and even anxiety, so that we could experience new levels of freedom and new levels of connection with God. Yes, we believe that God offers freedom from the oppression of anxiety, but we also believe that you have to be willing to contend for it. Now, maybe you've been hearing us say that word all month long, you've got to contend for your freedom. You're kind of wondering, that sounds nice, but what are we talking about here? Well, what we mean by contend is to discover the sources of our anxiety and to confront them with God's truth, with God's power, with God's supernatural work in our lives. And Heidi illustrated that so well last week in her story. We contend by allowing our hearts to grasp the truth of who God is, of who Jesus came to be in our lives. We contend by bringing our doubts about God, our fears about what our life is or will be, we bring all of that to Jesus. And we're here to help you do that this morning and in this series. But here's the thing, you have to make a decision. A decision to take a risk again. Because most likely, if you've been dealing with anxiety for a while, you feel like, I've already put myself out there so many times. I've taken risks, and nothing has worked, and nothing has paid off. But we want to encourage you this morning to take a risk again, to bring your whole self, (laughs) your fears, your doubts, your insecurities, out into the open with Jesus, so that he can help you confront them with the truth of who he is and who he came to be in your life. You know, I've said that phrase twice in the last minute, who Jesus is and who he came to be in your life. 
Who is that? <laughs> well, our series theme verse points to the answer of those questions. So go ahead. If you haven't already, pull your outline out of your program guide. We're going to look at our series theme verse. It's from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Rick reminded us last week that these were prophetic words from God that were given through the prophet Isaiah about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. And each week of the series, we've been kind of examining what it means for Jesus to be given each of these names. And this week, uh, the name that we're looking at might be one of the most confusing for Jesus. And the name is Everlasting Father. Now you might think, wait a second. I thought God was the Father and Jesus was the Son. Yes, you're right. But now you're telling me that Jesus is going to be called Everlasting Father. Yes, you're right. <laughs> so you're like, well, what are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. You may or may not have heard of a thing called the Trinity. And the Trinity is the fact that uh, one God exists as the perfect relationship of three persons. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. Is it confusing? Yes, it is. <laughs> is it mysterious? Yes, it is. We could preach a whole month's worth of sermons on the Trinity, and it would still be confusing, and it would still be mysterious. But the Trinity is also something else. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's amazing. It's incredible. And so hang in there with us as we unpack what it means for Jesus to be our everlasting Father. So why would Jesus, why would his name have been called Everlasting Father? Well, in many ways, I think Jesus may be the best person of the Godhead, the best person of the Trinity, to help us understand fatherhood. First, because of his intimate relationship with God, the Father, but also because he walked this earth just like we did. He had the experience of being fully man, fully human. You know, to the original hearers of the text, when they heard the term everlasting father, based in the, uh, on the original language, it would conjure up these images of an expressively loving father, of a father who would get down on his knees to embrace his kids, even when they didn't deserve it. You know, this picture of an everlasting father is a picture of a father who is always there, who's always caring, one who never looks away, who never abandons his kids, never stops loving his kids, even a picture of a father who desires the long-term best for his kids, and so he allows them to struggle a little bit instead of just jumping in to fix a problem for them, because he wants them to be able to grow up, to become stronger, to become smarter, to rely on him more. You know, those of you who are parents in this room, you can probably think of an instance in your, the life of your kids, where the easiest thing for you to do would have just been to pull your kids out of a tough situation or to, like, jump in and deal with their situation for them. But where you knew that the right thing to do <laughs> was just to be there for them, to be available, to listen, and to help, but to let them learn, to let them grow by dealing with their own situation, regardless of whether they experience success or failure. And I think that's what our everlasting Father does for us. He never leaves us. He's always there to love us, to care for us, to guide us. But he also lets us make our own choices. <laughs> now, you know how hard it is as a parent 
to do that with your kids, right? And so imagine how hard it must be for God, our Heavenly Father, who has all the power in the world to change any situation, to let that play out in our lives. Now, maybe for some of you, as you hear uh, kind of the picture, the term everlasting father paints, expressingly loving, full of grace, protective, yet wise, that's not that big of a leap for you to picture God that way, because your own parents gave you a great example of what that looks like. But maybe for others of you, the picture of having an everlasting father seems like a little bit of a leap, because it doesn't really mesh with your own experience. Maybe you were never given an opportunity to have a relationship with your earthly father, or you were abandoned by him, or you felt abandoned by him. Some of you still may not have the relationship with your earthly father that you desire, and so your difficult experiences with your earthly father have planted seeds of doubt in your heart about what a relationship with a heavenly father could really be like. And here's the thing. I think maybe even unconsciously, we don't even realize that we're doing it, but our experiences with our earthly father do impact the way that we view and experience God as our heavenly father. And I think Jesus came in the flesh to give us a clear first-hand picture of who God really is as our heavenly father. Jesus even said in John 14, 9, he said, if you have seen me, then you have seen the father. He wanted us to know what the Father was like, who the Father really is. I like to picture the conversation in heaven that led to Jesus being sent down to live among us on earth. I can picture Jesus looking down at all of the brokenness that fatherhood has caused us here on earth. And I can picture Jesus saying to God, God, I know you're good. You are an amazing Father. But so few people on earth have experienced a good father. And so I don't know that they're going to be able to believe that you are a good father unless I tell them, unless I show them. But God, they need to know because if they knew, if they truly knew, it would change everything for them. And so I have to go. I have to show them what an everlasting father is like. See, I think Jesus knew that in our lives that there would be gaps that exist between what we might intellectually understand or what we say we believe and what we've actually experienced or how we actually live out that belief. And anytime a gap exists in some area of our lives between what we say or believe about something and what we do or experience related to that thing, that gap creates anxiety. For example, uh, an example of a gap, I could say that my wife is the most important person in my life, but when I choose to focus my energy and attention on work or with other people instead of spending time with her, then there's a gap between my belief and my experience. And the thing is that we have those gaps in our spiritual lives as well. And one of the biggest gaps in the lives of many Christ followers, lives mine included, is the gap between what they say they believe about God the Father and how they live in relationship to God being their Father. We almost always have a God the Father gap in each of our lives, and that gap is important to identify because one of the greatest barriers to overcoming anxiety is our inability to live out what we say we believe about God. We say that God is a good father, but we don't always live like that's true. 
Maybe it's the father word that throws us off because like we've talked about, maybe our experiences have shown us that fathers don't stay. They leave, that fathers don't help, they hurt. Or maybe it's that good word that throws us off. Like, how could God be a good father if fill-in-the-blank happened to me or if fill-in-the-blank happened to someone that I love? But this God as a good father gap is nothing new. It has been around a long time, and its origin is found in the first humans ever to walk this planet in Genesis 3. And you know who created this gap? Certainly we have carried it on. But our greatest enemy and God's greatest enemy created this gap. Because Satan wanted to be in the place of God. Because he wanted the attention and affection that only God deserves. He started a long time ago. And he continues today to plant seeds of doubt in the hearts of God's most prized creation. And that is people. He whispered to Eve and he whispered to us today, God's not really good. You don't really need God because he doesn't really love you. He's just holding out on you. He wants to be able to control you. Because of his jealousy of God, the enemy is full of lies and manipulations. Because he couldn't get what he wanted, he wanted to make sure that God couldn't get what he wants either, which is our trust and our love. And so he plants doubt after doubt into the human heart. And when we let our doubts grow into disconnection from our everlasting Father, the result is a life of fear. And another name for fear is anxiety. It's that constant voice that keeps on questioning, does God really love me? Can God really provide me with hope in this situation? Is God really enough? And and these doubts that start just as small sparks grow into huge fires in our hearts and in our souls. And so here's what I want to say to you today. Here's what I want us to be able to walk away with today. Here's how we need to learn to contend for our freedom. That instead of nurturing your doubts, confront your doubts with God's truth. Instead of nurturing your doubts, confront your doubts with God's truth. This nurture word in this situation, I love this picture of this nurturing word. Nurture means to care for and encourage the growth or development of something. Another way to look at it is to say that what you nurture is what you attend to. It's what you give energy or attention or focus to. Some might even say that what you nurture is what you're showing affection for. And so the question is, are we showing affection for, are we giving attention to, are we focusing on and caring for the development of our doubts or Are we nurturing our relationship with God? I mean, if you've been following God, if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, I'm guessing that you would say, yeah, God loves me. You would say, yeah, I believe that God is good. But the real question is, do our actions back up those sayings, those beliefs? Do our actions prove that we know that we belong to and that we're taken care of by an everlasting God? Now listen, I'm not saying this this morning to make anyone feel guilty because the truth is every single one of us in this room can point to instances in our lives where we have lived with this kind of gap, where we have nurtured our doubts instead of our relationship with God. I'm not sure how many of you before have heard me share um, about our youngest son and our journey with him. 
But we knew that based on a genetic marker that we had a 50% chance of having a child with something called TSC, which is a genetic disorder uh, that's characterized by the growth of masses in and around several different vital organs that can cause problems like seizures, uh, among other really challenging and more serious things. And so this knowledge uh, led me to really drag my feet in agreeing for us to have kids. In fact, when Brooke got pregnant with Weston, who is our oldest, it was not something we were trying to do. And so God all-knowingly took that decision out of our hands <laughs> and made it for us. But Weston was born with no evidence of TSC. And so in my analytical, wanting to control the outcome of every situation kind of mind, <laughs> the thought of having a second child was like, no way. <laughs> like 50% chance, and we got the good 50% with the first one. And so to me, that meant that the bad 50% was what was left and that the second one was get, would, would get it. And so, as God typically does when we make a decision based on anxiety or based on control instead of through a relationship and through discernment with him, God was like, nah, good try, but that's not my plan. <laughs> and so eventually, he asked me to give up control, or at least whatever illusion of control I thought that I had, and to put this decision in his hands. Well, his hands brought about another pregnancy, and about halfway through the pregnancy, on the same day that we found out that we were having a little boy, we found out that our little boy did, in fact, have TSC, and we found that out because they found masses in his heart. Masses that, as the pregnancy continued, became too great to count. Masses that the doctors warned us could continue to grow and multiply. Masses that, if grown too big, too much, in the wrong places, could constrict blood flow to his heart. And they wanted us to know that there was a possibility that he wouldn't even make it to birth. Now, if you had asked me in that season, if I believed that God loved me, if I believed that God was a good father, I would have said yes, <laughs> right? That's the right Christian answer. But my actions and the things that I was saying, even if only to myself, revealed that there was definitely a gap between what I said I believed and how I was living, what I was saying. For 10 years, I had been incredibly anxious and fearful about this happening. And now, in that instance, it was like my worst fear was coming to fruition. In those 10 years, I was not taking any of my doubts to God. I found the switch of just shove it down. <laughs> just try to ignore it. Just try to control the outcome. Try to play God. And then maybe that will help you not be anxious about this situation. But the gap between what I believed... And what I was living like I believed created a disconnection between me and God. And that only created more anxiety. You know how I finally found freedom, though, <laughs> was that I was able to confront my doubts with God's truth. And so many of you were instrumental in helping me do that. I looked back this week at several of the Facebook posts. We had put up uh, some stuff on Facebook asking you to, to pray for Everett. Uh, and pray for our family during that season. And so many of you posted things that reminded me of who God is <laughs> and assured me that God was in control and that God had a plan. And honestly, it sounds weird to say this, and it, <laughs> it felt weird to, to think this and believe this, but after a 10-year struggle with that specific anxiety, God brought me to such a different place of trust in Him. Because by the time we got to the end of the pregnancy, I could honestly tell you from a place of conviction in my heart 
that come health or no health for him, come birth or no birth for him, that God was good. And that I believed that God was going to use whatever happened for good. Well, Everett uh, was born, and he is now three. He's almost three and a half. And uh, he is crazy, (laughs) and he's fun-loving, and he's passionate. Uh, We were shopping at uh, Target the other day. Actually, we tried to go Christmas shopping with the kids, which was a terrible idea. I don't recommend it. (laughs) An hour in, I was like, we're done. We're not doing this again. But while we were there, I saw a shirt uh, that's, that had uh, three check boxes, and it said, nice, naughty, and I tried. <laughs> and the I tried box was checked, and I was like, yep, that's Everett. Like, he doesn't, like, mean to be, like, overly physical and, and like, cruel, but he's just so passionate and fun-loving. He just loves people. He just wants to squeeze everybody and hold them cro- close. He tried. <laughs> he tried. But a few months ago, uh, actually, we were at the pediatric cardiologist. And we got the word that not only are his masses totally gone, but his crazy heart rhythm that he had, which I didn't even mention earlier, but when you listen to his heart when he was uh, first born, it was like a little kid practicing the drums. I mean, his beats were just all over the place. We found out that his heart rhythm for the first time is completely normal as well. Praise God for that. Now here's the thing. (laughs) Everett's not out of the woods. Everett has masses in his brain, and he's got a few small masses near his kidneys, He's not out of the woods, but he is in God's hands. And while I could choose to keep being anxious about what could or honestly what might happen, instead I choose to allow God's truths, the truths about who he is, to rise above my fears, to cover over my fears. Did I have doubts then? (laughs) Yes, I did. Do I have doubts now? Absolutely, yes, I still do. Doubts are going to come. We can't feel bad for having doubts. The question is, what will we do with the doubts? Because when we let our doubts linger or grow, for instance, if we allow doubts to grow in our hearts about whether God really loves us, about whether God is really good, then Satan can use those doubts to deceive us into believing that God doesn't really have our backs. (laughs) And if God doesn't have our backs... (laughs) then I guess it's up to us to have our own backs. And I don't know about you, but that thought causes me a great deal of anxiety. (laughs) Because if it's all on me, if my fate depends on my success, on how I look, on how I act, on how funny I am, or how anything else I am, then I am in trouble and I will always be anxious. (laughs) That belief would choose me to just continue to churn in the anxiety cycle. But when I realize that Jesus has my back... When I look at and understand and comprehend the extent to which Jesus went to have my back, the depths to which he plunged to rescue me, then I begin to reinforce my belief in the goodness of an everlasting father. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, listen, (laughs) you don't understand. My doubt game is strong. (laughs) I don't know how to stop nurturing my doubts. That's how I live. I am the king or I am the queen of doubting. I hear you. So what about this then? What if instead of doubting God, you doubted your doubts? I mean, what if instead of doubting whether God could really be a good father, you doubted that doubt by asking, what if God really is a good father? What if Jesus really did come to set me free? What if you flipped your doubt on its head, and shed some doubt 
on your doubt. Because listen, if God, if Jesus really is who he says he is, again, that would change everything for us. And the cool thing is that even in those moments, even in those times where we just feel stuck in doubt and anxiety, our genius God actually designed us so that our brains can rewire themselves. <laughs> Researchers have discovered this, and they named it neuroplasticity. Meanwhile, I can just picture God up in heaven being like, well, yeah, like, duh, that was my plan all along. What took you so long to figure that out? Basically, from a Christian point of view, Neuroplasticity means that God created you so that his truth can literally renew your thinking. It was genius of God. It's what Philippians 4.8 is all about, where Paul says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Underline this next phrase. Fix your thoughts. Underline, fix your thoughts. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things. Underline, think about things. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Philippians 4.8 essentially says what your next bold statement in your outline is. It says, rewire your brain. Renew your thinking. Fix your thoughts on the truth that you belong to an everlasting Father. And everything about him is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Paul isn't just saying, you just got to think more positively. No, the science of the brain that God designed for us deserves and demands much more than that. Paul is saying, you've got to stop focusing on your doubts. You've got to stop focusing on your anxiety. Because when you focus on doubt, when you focus on anxiety, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find more reasons to doubt and more reasons to be anxious. But he says instead, when you focus on the actions and on the person, on the character of your loving Father, when you fix your eyes on Jesus and what he says and everything that he did, guess what you'll find? You'll find even more reasons to trust that you have an everlasting Father. Here's our marching orders. It's that we must contend for what God says is true for us with courage and persistence. We must contend for what God says is true for us with courage and persistence. If we are willing to go on the long journey, <laughs> if we are willing to take an honest look at our doubts and our fears, to bring them to God, to speak God's truth over them, then God will begin to give us a, a change in the way that we think. This is not magic, but this is mysterious. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's that trinity at work that we talked about earlier. It's the Holy Spirit helping us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, like it says in Romans 12.2. Paul also says in Philippians 4.7, the verse before the verse that's in your outline, that the guarantee that we are offered when we are willing to contend for God's truth for our lives is this. He says that God's peace, which transcends or surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we can struggle to understand, we can ask all the whys, we can stay stuck in our doubt or our anxieties, or God's word says that we can contend for his truth in our lives and we can allow God's peace to transcend 
our understanding. What could really happen in our lives if we truly started to live like we believed that God was our loving, caring, everlasting Father? That's part of Danny Talarowski's story that we're going to watch today on video, and I want to invite you to watch her story with me now. A little before high school, I started noticing something just wasn't right. I didn't feel like myself. I was known for always smiling and being happy, but at some point, that became more of an act than my reality. I felt like what everyone else was seeing was a mask that I put on and that no one truly saw how I felt or even cared about me. I was always thinking dark thoughts about who I was and that no one would care if I wasn't even on this earth. My parents had my sister and my brother and my friends had other friends, so who was truly going to miss me? These thoughts continued when more and more events seemed to be proof that I was nothing, that I was not important. I know it sounds like typical teenage stuff, but it was more than that when I started to actually hurt myself and picturing myself gone. I finally worked up the courage to talk to my mom and to tell her how I was feeling, that I didn't feel like myself anymore. We made a doctor's appointment and I was diagnosed with chronic depression and anxiety. The, they put me on medications, but soon had to increase the dosage because I was still having thoughts of hurting myself. We found a dosage and a medication that worked and kept the thoughts away, but my anxiety was still very prevalent. I couldn't be at home alone overnight even though I was an adult. I couldn't go to a rest stop on my own without having an anxiety attack. I couldn't go to a new place on my own. I couldn't go to a crowded place on my own. The list goes on and on. I had come to accept that this was just going to be my life, that I was going to live in constant fear and anxiety. Then at the beginning of this year, I led my small group through a series called Anxious for Nothing by Max Licato, which teaches on Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Through the series, I really learned what anxiety truly is and that God doesn't want me to live in, in constant anxiety and fear. I learned that God is truly in control and that He wants me to come to Him with my problems. Since we ended that series, I took myself off my medications officially and indefinitely. I have felt more like myself than I have in ages. As a first year teacher, life still brings on challenges and stress, but I try to remember that I'm not alone that God is a father who really does care about me and that I am convinced loves me. I try to remember to pray when I feel anxious or afraid and be brutally honest with God. It helps me to talk to God and to know that he is near and that he hears me. God always shows me in one way or another that he has heard my prayers and knowing that helps me to keep trusting him. Instead of nurturing her doubts, she learned to confront her doubts with God's truth. She learned to bring her doubts to God. When she began to dig into God's word through that Max Lucado study, she began to learn that God welcomed her just as she was. That as she said that she wasn't alone, that is something that almost every single one of us that struggles with anxiety feels like we're alone. <laughs> and it's a lie from the enemy. We're not alone. She learned that God loves her immensely, even in the middle of her anxiety and her depression. And she began to allow God's truth to penetrate her life. She has begun to taste what it feels like to be free. And so I want to encourage you as well to bathe yourself in God's truth. 
If you're nurturing doubts, God's word is full of evidence that speaks to and confronts those doubts. Back in the first week of the series, we encouraged you that for every problem, there is a promise from God's word. For every problem, there's a promise. And we had put a list of six scriptures uh, that we had shared with you in week one. We put those in your program guide, and today we put them back in your outline again. And I want to encourage you this week to pour over those truths, to maybe even claim one of them as a truth that you're going to continue to return to and to use to contend with against your fear and anxiety. Leslie, our awesome communications director, she made images for each one of those promises, and she put them on Facebook two weeks ago. She's putting them back on again today so that you can snag those images so that you can use them uh, as your phone background or however you would like so that every time you turn on your phone, for me, every time I turn on my phone, I can remember that God is my helper, that he rescues me from the miry clay. He pulls me up out of the pit that I am not alone, that in my challenges, in my struggles, God is with me. There is hope for freedom from anxiety, but the pathway to freedom from anxiety, the pathway really to freedom from anything, takes courage. (laughs) It takes refusing to quit, continuing to persist in the truth that you have a good, everlasting Father, a Savior, who, as we think about Christmas time, came near thousands of Christmases ago, but who also stays near today. When God's truths are our focus, the peace of God can rule in our hearts and in our minds. The worship team is going to come in a minute, and they're going to share a song that I hope will speak truth to you in a different way uh, than my spoken word could. But it's the truth that... (laughs) All of these things, all of these doubts that we have when we think about our anxieties or when we think about our struggles, we doubt, does God really see me? Does God really care? Does God really love me? Does God really pursue me? That's what this song hits. Truth that Jesus came near to demonstrate his love, to be with us, to love us, to care for us, to carry us through, to rescue us, even in the darkest of trials. But before this song First, let me pray for you. God, the enemy and our own experiences have given us a slanted and inaccurate picture of who you really are. God, there's doubts, there are fears that are so deeply ingrained in us that it seems nearly impossible that they could be uprooted. But so many different places and in so many different ways in your word, we find out that you are the God of the impossible. And so God, today we voice our desire to collaborate with you, to do the work in our lives that seems impossible. God, to be set free, to be rescued from the spiritual oppression of anxiety. God, we acknowledge and we agree with your truth today that you see us that you love us, that you care for us, that you're not sick of our struggle, God. And that like a good father, you have equipped us with everything that we need to find freedom. You've given us your promises as weapons to battle our doubts. You've even designed us so that our brains can rewire our thinking through your word. So God, today, (laughs) we commit to you. We want to contend 
for our freedom. We renounce the lies of the enemy. We renounce the doubts that he has planted and we confront them with who you are, a good, everlasting father who longs to help rescue us. God, thank you that you love us enough not to leave us as we are. You love us enough to see the good work that you've begun in us to completion. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.